With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mark, do you like getting into fights on Twitter? I hate it. I really do. Honestly, it makes me feel like I'm going over the top of a roller coaster and plummeting to the bottom. It makes my stomach drop. I am in a bad Mark Joseph Stern writes about courts and the law for Slate. It is one of my least favorite things to do in the world, and I really try to avoid it. Yeah, okay, well, you try to avoid it, so why do you keep doing it? (laughs) (laughs) I really think I have a good track record here, except for the past week, which is an exception. Mark made this exception because of an overheated debate he saw brewing about, of all things, Washington, D.C.'s new criminal code. We are on the precipice of dangerous change in Washington, D.C. The city council there is set to go pillow soft on violent crime. What does this do to our nation's capital, do you think? It will be a criminal holiday in Washington, D.C. Bill, It wasn't just cable news worried about these new rules. The Washington Post said this code could make the city more dangerous. And after D.C.'s mayor threatened to veto the legislation, the clause really came out. The city council of Washington, D.C. is trying to increase crime in Washington, D.C. They're trying to eliminate mandatory minimum sentences, which basically means, hey, if you do, if you commit a crime, you get away with it. The only- I think the wildest thing I saw alleged about this new criminal code was on Fox News, where the headline was, Liberal city tries to make carjacking easier. They had a mandatory minimum sentence for violent crimes with a gun. They reduced it from 15 years to four. Wow. For some criminals, that may be a vacation. Is Washington, D.C. making carjacking easier? I can say with confidence, Mary, that the answer is no. What really bothered Mark about all this is that it's not like the district was passing some big liberal reform package. This was just a revision to a pretty basic document that hadn't been overhauled in decades. And sure, it recognized that keeping people locked up for a long time doesn't seem to make cities safer. But it's not exactly an abolitionist's handbook. If I'm going to spend all of this time and emotions <laughs> uh, like like fighting about criminal justice reform, I wish we were actually fighting about reform and not this boring, super long, technocratic bill that just has a bunch of like plain vanilla best practices stuffed in it so that prosecutors and cops and D.C. residents know what the law is and what the law isn't. But people are scared. People are scared and I get it. I live in a neighborhood that, you know, I'm not going to say it's like super dangerous, super run down, whatever. Like, I I hate it when people talk about any neighborhood that way. But there was a shooting uh, at my neighbor's house. Someone stood on the front porch and shot repeatedly into their front door. If they had gotten the uh, number wrong, they could have been shooting into my house instead. Carjackings, robberies, thefts, all kinds of illegal traffic violence. I've seen it. I get it. Crime is a problem in the district. And what people are proposing as a solution, which is basically tanking this bill, is not going to do anything to rein in the violence. Today on the show, 
what the fight over D.C.'s new criminal code reveals about how we talk about crime and how we can do it better. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Okay, so let's talk about why D.C. was rewriting its criminal code in the first place. Can you explain? Because they've been working on this for like over a decade. (laughs) Yeah, well over a decade. This all began really in 2006 because D.C.'s old criminal code was written by Congress in 1901, back when D.C. had no home rule. Um, and it was written in a way that was extremely vague and confusing. Uh, and, and what that means in part is that a lot of crimes weren't actually defined. So like simple assault was a crime under the old code, but the elements of what made up that crime weren't defined. So even like today, we still have judges trying to fill in the gaps of this really old, archaic code. Um, there were other problems, you know, all of these regulations about how many mules you can take into the district. How many mules? Mules, because it was in 1901. People used mules instead of cars. There was a ban <laughs> on playing, like, stickball in the alleys. Real back-in-the-day stuff. Real old-timey, like your great-great-great-grandmother wouldn't even remember. Um, and, and then you have this problem of the code being updated in piecemeal fashion so that a lot of the ambiguities that were first there get compounded. Uh, and so you have a situation uh, where there's, like, a total mismatch. So just to give one great example, threatening to destroy someone's property under the old code, that carried a significantly higher penalty than actually destroying someone's property. Whoa. Pickpocketing somebody, in theory, carried the same penalty as beating them half to death and stealing their purse. If you snatched a pizza box from a driver's hand and refused to pay, you could, in theory, be subject to the same penalty as someone who beats up an old woman on the street and steals money out of her purse. Like, there is a huge mismatch between crime and punishment in this old code. Was it ever being misused? (sighs) 
I mean, look, I think so, because D.C. has the highest incarceration rate in the nation, if we count it as a state. I think that prosecutors and police, to some extent, were reading these really broad and vague crimes uh, in a way that gave them maximum discretion uh, to arrest and prosecute people for things that did not necessarily deserve arrest and prosecution or hand down sentences that were way, way, way too long. Um, I wouldn't say that abuse of the code is the number one reason it needed to be updated. I would say that the number one reason is it made so little sense that everyone was left confused and there were crimes that prosecutors wouldn't charge because they literally did not know what they would have to prove in court to make those charges stick. So in November, this new code passes the city council and there had been some objections raised to it along the way. Like eventually the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. gave this testimony. where They're like, hey, like we like a lot of what you're doing, but like we have some concerns. But they generally were like, OK, we want to keep this process going because it's gone so far. It passes the city council. Unanimously. Unanimously. It gets to the mayor's desk. What happens then? So the mayor vetoes the bill. Uh, mayor Muriel Bowser, who is a Democrat, who I voted for, I'll throw in, uh, with many hesitations. Um, but she is sort of like queen of D.C. And <laughs> she vetoed the bill and sent a message to the council saying, I agree with 95% of this, but I am deeply concerned that it lowers penalties for things like carjacking and gun crimes, which it doesn't, which we'll talk about. Uh, and so she sent it back to the council and said, take out the controversial stuff and send it back to me. I want to talk about the criticisms of this bill, because what the mayor said, it didn't come out of nowhere. It really echoed what the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. had said when they testified like a year ago about this process. So I'm wondering if you can characterize the concerns that have been raised, and I think it's fair to say primarily by law enforcement, about this criminal code. Yeah. So first, I'll say what the concerns aren't for the most part. Um, one of the things this bill does is is get rid of almost all mandatory minimums. Um, there are still a few for like first degree murder, um, but most of them are wiped out. Real quick, just explain what a mandatory minimum is. Sure. So a mandatory minimum sentence means that when somebody is convicted of a crime, they have to be sentenced to a certain number of years in prison. And most of these were instituted during the war on drugs, war on crime, super carceral 1980s and 90s. Uh, and they have had a really devastatingly disproportionate effect on black and brown communities. They are widely condemned by both Democrats and Republicans as unfair. But what the U.S. attorney and the D.C. Uh, police union and Mayor Bowser were all kind of raising a stink about was a reduction in penalties for certain violent crimes, including carjacking and some firearm related offenses. And this is happening when D.C. is dealing with a lot of firearm crime and a lot of carjackings. Abs absolutely. And so if you just hear that and you just hear, oh, the, the sentences are dropping for carjacking and, and some gun crimes, you think, well, why in the world would they do that? You know, we're having a huge problem with gun violence and carjackings. Is now really the right time to be letting those, those offenders out of prison earlier? I mean, what would you say to a prosecutor who says, this new code limits my options? And I'm not going to be able to hold people truly accountable. Like when the U.S. attorney testified about this, you know, they said we could support reductions in the maximum penalties, 
but these reductions are too great. And they don't recognize the fact that, for instance, carjacking is akin to burglary. It is traumatic and it is an invasion into a person's personal and secure space. So here's what I'll say. I understand that criticism. I believe that carjackers should be incarcerated. Um, But what the Criminal Code Reform Commission did here was look at a decade's worth of sentencing data from D.C. court and looked at what sentences judges were actually handing down, okay? So, under the old code, the maximum sentence for for carjacking was 40 years, right? But no judge was ever, ever handing down anywhere close to a 40-year sentence for carjacking. The absolute harshest penalties that any judge ever handed down for carjacking ran about 15 years, okay? And so in recognition of that fact, the commission created a new 24-year maximum sentence for carjacking, which is, yes, it's 16 years less than the previous max, but it's also nine years longer than the lengthiest sentences that are being handed down today. And so with respect, I I just reject the idea that this is limiting prosecutors to because the reality is that they are going to be able to obtain the exact same sentences for carjackers once this code is in effect in 2025 that they are obtaining today. If their argument is that dropping that penalty is going to reduce the deterrent, that carjackers are going to say, oh, 24 years instead of 40, time to go jack some cars. Like, I reject that on the basis of a mountain of evidence that shows that ultra-long sentences do not serve a deterrent effect and in some cases can actually increase violent crime. I want to talk about another concern that was raised about the criminal code, and that's the fact that the new criminal code makes it easier for people who commit misdemeanor crimes to have a jury trial. Why is that important? Like, what is that going to do? Because the concern here is that it will flood the courts with cases and make it harder for everyone to have a fair trial. And that seems like a legitimate concern. Judges are worried. Lots of people are retiring here. And it's just going to be me with all of these new cases. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, I think the the first answer is the Sixth Amendment, which guarantees a right to trial by jury when you're charged with a criminal offense. Oh, that pesky constitution. Now, the Supreme Court has said that jury trials are voluntary for sentences that are less than six months. Um, and a single misdemeanor offense in D.C. is uh, less than six months. And so that, in theory, uh, aligns with Supreme Court precedent. However, what prosecutors are doing to get around that is charging multiple misdemeanors and asking for those sentences to be run consecutively. So people who are convicted of multiple misdemeanors without a jury trial, with just a judge, they are ending up imprisoned for much longer than six months, which is supposed to be the maximum that you can get without a jury trial. And that loophole, in my view, needs to be closed to bring D.C. in accordance with the Sixth Amendment. Now, I get the complaint that that could flood the system with with jury trial requests. But first of all, this is a very delayed implementation. It doesn't uh, take full effect until 2030. Second of all, the council is working closely with the Senate Democratic majority to fill the vacancies in D.C. Superior Court that have been left for way too many years and created the current backlog. And third, Congress, in allocating money to the district, needs to step up 
and it ha- frankly has for a long time, and given us more money to our criminal justice system, to our courts especially, to ensure that they can handle uh, the, the the many cases that are being tried and that will be tried in the future. I'll add, by the way, that we did have jury trials in the district until the 90s when budget cuts led the council to cut them. So we did this for most of our history. This is a matter of bringing it back around to, to, to old practice rather than embarking on some new radical territory. You know, all these criticisms we've talked about, I was struck by the way they can be narratively spun forward. Like if you look at this op-ed in the Washington Post about the criminal code, its lead is that Washington could become a more dangerous city when this code goes into effect, which is, it strikes me, something that's impossible to know. But I want to take that concern seriously. Like, do we have data about what happens to crime rates and how related they are to changes like the ones we've been talking about, making misdemeanor trials more available, reducing penalties for things like burglary and carjacking? So we definitely have data that reducing these super long sentences does not result in more violent crime. Instead, we have some data that suggests that ultra-long sentences can increase violent crime, uh, both by destabilizing the communities um, that these prisoners are taken from and held away from for decades, but also by essentially teaching people criminal behavior while behind bars. And when they're released, all they know is that. Um, what we don't have is any data that shows that reducing these sentences increases violent crime. That was the Washington Post's key concern, and it just does not align with all of the studies we have. And we know this because, you know, we've been doing criminal justice reforms for many years now. And what we see is that increasing penalties beyond a certain point, and, and there's some debate about what that point is, but it's it's certainly not more than a decade. Increasing penalties beyond that is just not going to reduce violent crime, period. Earlier this month, Washington, D.C.'s city council voted to override the mayor's veto of the new criminal code. When we get back, does that mean the fight over crime in D.C. is over? Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 
here's something I found myself thinking as I got ready for this interview. Like, I wondered, was there ever a version of this new criminal code that folks in law enforcement in the District of Columbia would be okay with? Because it strikes me that no matter what the city council did here, it's going to be a pain in the butt for them. They're going to have to adjust how they prosecute. They're going to have to, like, read it, like, absorb it. And that's, like, just baseline hard. And then there's probably going to be changes to how they do business. So do you think there was ever a version where law enforcement was, like, fully on board? So, so just to push back against your question a little, Mary, uh-huh. uh, the DC, the DC Attorney General, who is elected by the people of DC to enforce our laws, that office is entirely on board with the new code and strongly supports it. So, not all of law enforcement is against this. Well, the police union and the U.S. Attorney are sort of mad to hate it, right? The police union. Absolutely does not like it. Uh, it's doing what police unions always do, which is push back against anything that even smells of reform. The U.S. Attorney's Office has not opposed it, but it has raised some concerns about specific provisions, sure. And I think the answer to the question is uh, the, the police union was just always going to oppose this. You know, the, the, the police union uh, takes the same combative, uh, extremely carceral stance that police unions do around the country. Um, they, they feel that they need to defend very long sentences and very broadly defined crimes, uh, you know, to keep officers safe and to ensure that the bad guys are put behind bars. And the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, you know, I, I was a little surprised that they raised some concerns about provisions that they previously seemed to support. Uh, I think some of that might have been political posturing. But yeah, those prosecutors are going to have to relearn the elements of lots of crimes the penalties that attach to lots of crimes, different gradations that we've now created so that pickpocketing and beating someone half to death aren't the same crime. Like, all that stuff has a learning curve, and some prosecutors are going to be irked by it. I don't think they would ever love having to learn a new way of doing business, but that's just kind of how code revisions shake out. Yeah. You've raised how this isn't a bill that's about like progressive for reforms or decarceration or anything like that. It's also it's not a bill that's aimed at reducing crime. Like it's just it's just there to kind of uh, categorize crime and make sure that things are straightforward is my understanding. Yeah, th- that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think critics of this bill understand that Reducing sentences for people, reducing punishment for people, it may not reduce crime. And that to reduce crime, you need to do all these other things. Like you need to have better housing and better education and better jobs. Criminal code doesn't touch any of that. And so I do wonder, is there any sign that the city council is going to be investing in all these other interventions at the same time that they're reducing these maximum punishments for people? So I think the answer is yes. Um, I mean, first, again, just to push back, like they're reducing maximum punishments on the page. That is not actually going to shake out in a sentence reduction in court for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, setting that aside... The council has a very strong moderate faction, and they voted for this bill and voted to override the veto, but are also working on different measures to try to lift communities out of the cycle of violence that they are currently stuck in, especially
especially uh, what we say east of the river, east of the Anacostia River, Ward 7 and 8, those are the epicenters of violence. And both Bowser and the council are laser-focused on providing a huge amount more of economic opportunity for those people, of getting younger people into jobs, of keeping them in school, of doing violence intervention, of identifying the specific people who are seemingly more likely to fall into a life of violence and doing an intervention before it's too late. There's a whole lot of that stuff going on in the background, but it isn't getting talked about nearly as much as this kind of technocratic revision of the code. And that irks me a great deal because I understand the fear around carjacking. I get it. At the same time, this code revision is not going to have any impact on that. What is are the violence interventions and other reforms that the council is working on. And yet the people who are complaining about the code aren't showing up to testify in support of that. They aren't writing their council members to say, what are we doing about this? They aren't protesting in support of any of that stuff. They're just complaining about the code. And that, to me, it just feels kind of like incredibly misguided. I won't say lazy because I think that their heart is in the right place, but their brain is definitely not. This fight is over for now because the D.C. City Council overrode the mayor's veto of the criminal code. But I wonder if you think it's really over, truly over. And I say that because there's been so much media attention to this criminal code. And technically, the House of Representatives can get involved in D.C.'s business. So, you know, we saw the New York Post actually recommending that, like saying, hey, like Kevin McCarthy, take on D.C.'s criminal code. Do you think there's going to be another round of fights over this? Maybe. It may well be that the House launches some kind of investigation or holds hearings about D.C.'s criminal code. Maybe that's the fight that House Republicans want to have, uh, some kind of uh, clash with D.C. to show their voters that they're tough on crime. However, at the end of the day, all they can do is try to get legislation passed that would repeal the code or, or prevent it from ever taking effect. And to do that, they'll have to pass it in the House, they'll have to get 60 votes in the Senate, and it'll have to cross Joe Biden's desk. Uh, the reality is that is an incredibly heavy lift. So I don't think that Congress is actually going to override this bill, um, but it could be the symbolic fight that House Republicans use to try to keep this crime narrative going. Maybe this is the way they inject new life into it going into 2023 and 2024. Mark Joseph Stern, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for explaining it all to me. Thanks so much, Mary. Always a pleasure. Mark Joseph Stern is a Slate senior writer covering courts and the law. All right, that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're up to here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. You can do that by going on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and signing up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jira Downing, and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with an assist from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond, make sure I read the ads. He heads up our podcast operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.